What a great Jewish word. El Shaddai actually means God Almighty, but there's another meaning which is more nurturing and maternal, and it means the all-sufficient God. And the word El Shaddai goes back into antiquity, probably even before Jewish people were on this earth. So I had lunch with a friend of mine not too long ago who happens to be sitting in the audience right now. And he told me the only thing he really didn't like about Unity Ministers was that they talked about the Bible a lot. <laughs> so I thought, what better day to speak about the Bible than, than today? Uh, <laughs> it's very important to understand <laughs> that this is a totally Jewish document, sacred text. And in Christianity, we seem to have forgotten that. It's, we've been, we've forget, been forgetting it for over 2,000 years. But this text was never meant to be read literally, ever. The Jewish people, even early on, had a term called midrash. And midrash is a Hebrew word meaning to search out. This ancient Jewish method of interpreting the Bible searches not for what is familiar, but for what is unfamiliar. Not for what is clear, but for what is, not for what is clear, but, is, but for what is unclear. And then wrestles with the text passionately, playfully, and reverently. The Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, was written purely in Aramaic by Jewish men with Jewish bias, and through the Jewish understanding and culture. And in order to understand this text, we must go back in time and understand what they were really meaning. The New Testament was written also by strictly Jewish men who were Greek speaking, and the same is, the same is there. In the, in the New Testament, what you see over and over again is that they say this was done in accordance with the scripture. The scripture that we're talking about in the New Testament wasn't the New Testament because it didn't exist. Scripture they're talking about is here. And we're going to speak about that a little bit. I um, have spent about, I guess maybe 20 years ago, I first got involved with the Bible and I really didn't have much use for it. It didn't stick within me. I, didn't, I wasn't connected to it at all. Um, and, but I began to take Bible classes because I was thinking about becoming a minister. But, of course, I never believe anybody, anything anybody ever says to me because I guess I'm Jewish in, in, in heart. So I started to uh, research the Bible. I thought, okay, we're going to start at the front. So it's, it's Genesis, and I get that that's probably people sitting around the campfire 2,000, 3,000 years ago or more. And, you know, having questions brought to the elders and they would give them answers and they were essentially all oral history for 2,600 years, basically. But the book of Moses was a little different because I just assumed that there was a lot of truth there, that Moses was a real person. But when I started researching it, what I found out was two things. If I, if I were a person, a minister, who believed in the literal interpretation of the Bible, if I believed that God gave the words directly to Moses and he wrote them down, then that person that I found in my research 
believed everything in the Bible and that Moses' story was 100% real. But on the other side of that, I found biblical scholar after biblical scholar after a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that uh, there was nothing in the Bible or in archaeology that shows that Moses ever existed as a real person. And I was shocked by that. I don't know if you are. I don't know if you know that for the fact, but that is in fact true. The best biblical scholars today will tell you that it was uh, mythological. And like all mythologies, there probably is a thread of truth in it. And we're going to touch on that for a minute. So if Moses, if the story wasn't historical, um, then, then what could it have been? And what do we know now? So there is, a, there is a, obviously an Egyptian connection because Moses was, a, was an Egyptian name, actually. And so there's been a huge amount of archaeology in the last 150 years in the Middle East. <clears throat> and it wasn't until 1907 that Egyptologists found four pharaohs that had disappeared from history. The head pharaoh was named Akhenaten, and he was the human being that founded the first monotheistic religion. Almost no one knows that. The people in Egypt did not like that because they were polytheistic. They believed in the sun god. They believed in Amun and Ra. You've seen that in movies where Amun Ra comes out and, you know, turns everybody into sand. Well, that was the same god that they're talking about. Ra is the sun god. Amun was the sky god. So, Akhenaten believed, and it was an evolutionary belief on his part, but he believed that there was a singular God over all other gods, which if you look at the, uh, at the Ten Commandments, that's exactly what it says. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It does not say you can't have any other gods. It says thou shalt not have any, any, more, any other gods before me. <clears throat> over time, there was a lot of conflict because when you, because he edicted that all the other Egyptian gods will be eliminated. You can no longer worship them. You can no longer do that. Well, we know how that works out in history, don't we? <laughs> Seen that over and over again, even, even largely today. There, but they couldn't get rid of them. Maybe you don't know this, but a, a pharaoh was a person who was selected by God to be pharaoh. So it's really hard to go in and throw them out because what's that, what is that going to say about your God? They probably made a really big mistake. But there were a lot of people who wanted to get rid of them. And, but pharaohs in Egypt were in dynasties based on their families. The last two of the pharaohs were named Tutmos and Amos. M-O-S-E, M-O-S-E. Isn't it strange? Now, the M-O-S-E in that word means son, and Moses means sons. So it was really a play on words that the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew Bible people used when they, when they talked about Moses. He was the sons of man, the sons of God, and that's probably where it came from. Now, so there probably is some thread of truth 
that extended into the Moses story because these four pharaohs were eliminated from the history of Egypt. They literally chiseled their names off of all the monuments. They eliminated that he built a giant new town on the Nile River. So it wasn't until, until 1907 that we even discovered this again. So I, there's a growing belief that this is a little bit of the mythological thread that led into the Moses story. So what else do we know? Archaeologically, what we now know is that there was no exodus. Um, the Bible explains that we take 600,000 males plus females plus slaves plus everybody else and, and we're going to exit uh, Egypt, but that does not appear to have happened so what we have seen is that it is believed that the Hebrew or the Jewish people evolved locally. What we, what we know is that people known as the Canaanites who lived in uh, Canaan, obviously. It's like Austinites live in Austin. Canaanites lived in Canaan. And that is Israel. That's Judah. That's Palestine. That's all that same area. So we do know that they were there for a thousand years and that they were polytheistic. And it is now believed that Jewish people are actually Canaanites who evolved from this polytheistic religion and began to move out of the cities because they were, um, you know, attacked and belittled and dehumanized. They put them, they went up into the highlands of Canaan and there are actually places in the Bible which talk, talks about that. They went into the highlands of Canaan and built their own villages. So if we know this, and we believe that this is the truth, then what would the Moses story look like if you now know that? What if we go back and look at that story again and see if it mirrors any of what we know to be really true? The first thing you find in the, in the book of Exodus is, okay, if you, I know everybody's seen the Ten Commandments, the, you know, Cecil B. DeMille movie and all that, and you have this huge, huge scenes about the little baby and the basket and stuff, putting in the reeds, and they find him, and he grows up to be a, an Egyptian prince. <clears throat> but that story, as all, almost all stories, is borrowed from history. You have to remember that. They don't, they don't reinvent anything in this book. They go back in history and find something somebody's going to remember. That is actually the story of the birth, of the mythical birth, or actual real birth, of the greatest king in the first empire ever, ever in the world named Sargon I. That was his birth story. And that was in 3000 BC. So there was memory for 2000 years before this occurred. And yet the biblical writers went and picked up his story and put it in there because now, you see, Moses had to be bigger than Sargon I because he was, he was the big guy in history. So you it's, it's all like that. Jesus had to be more important than Moses. All of that, same story. So in the book of Exodus, we find, we find Moses uh, leaving his apartment probably. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure he had one. 
And he went out into the air where the Hebrew people were, and he saw that there, were, there was an Egyptian man uh, arguing and beating up a Hebrew person. And Moses didn't like that at all. So he looks around, sees if anybody's watching him. He grabs that Egyptian and he kills him and he buries him in the sand. So that's kind of maybe the same as the early Canaanites were dealing with when they were trying to get rid of their old thoughts, their old polytheistic thoughts. I need to bury these thoughts in the sand. It wasn't about Moses killing anybody. It was about him killing off his old, old beliefs. That's what that story actually is trying to tell us from the Jewish perspective. Now, we can read that literally and we think, oh, my God, what does that mean? But from the Jewish perspective, that's really what it means. Now, we see Moses leaving there um, for Midian right afterwards. And when he arrives, because now Moses is escaping from all of his past, escaping again, escaping from his his past thoughts. He has to leave them because if he stays in Egypt, he knows he will die. But that's true when we stay too long in one place. Our soul is dying. We're being crushed. And so it's, it's really saying that I have to leave this place and move on. So Moses goes to Midian. Of course, he meets a woman. That's always the case. And, and this woman and sisters just happen to be, have, happen to have a dad who he gets invited to go have dinner with them. Well, their father just happens to be the high priest of Midian. Midian, Midians are Canaanites. Midians are Canaanites. They're Semitic people, Semitic people. So we see that now Moses is being immersed in the Canaanite religion. Well, of course, that's where the Hebrew people came from. So Moses was being immersed in this, and it says he stayed there for 40 years, But the number 40 in the Bible only means as long as it took or as many as it takes. It doesn't mean a time or a number. It only means he was there just as long as he needed to be to move on. We see Moses um, eventually confused. He's in charge of his father-in-law's sheep herd. And uh, he's going to take his his sheep because the climates have changed. He's going to take the sheep up the mountain to where... they can be fed better, and Moses can be fed better as well. So you see Moses going through the wilderness with his sheep, and, and metaphysically, wildernesses and sheep means a really giant, confused number of thoughts. There's lots of sheep, there's lots of crazy thoughts going on in his mind, because now he knows something's missing. He's got a hole in his heart, just like the Canaanites were feeling when they were staying and participating in their polytheistic religion. Exactly the same thing. As Moses goes up the mountain, it means that we're going up in a higher level of consciousness. Over and over again, higher and higher we go, the higher our consciousness is. And that's what was happening to Moses. Probably to the sheep too, but I don't think they knew it. So, I had to throw that in. So, Moses gets to the top of the mountain and and he has a spiritual experience. That's all that really is meaning. He's, he's, he's been thinking and thinking and churning through his whole mind. And he gets to the top of the mountain. And he has this incredible burning bush spiritual experience. Well, that obviously is what happened to some of the people Canaanites in their previous life. It's exactly what would have happened. 
And at some point, there had to be somebody in that community, those communities, who said, you know, there's a better way. Let's maybe move out. Let's, let, this isn't working for us. Let's move out. Well, we've all probably left churches at the time. That, that's what happens. We, this doesn't feel right to us. We're going to move on. We're going to move out. That's what was really happening. And that is where Judaism, which wasn't Judaism yet, but that's, what, that's where Judaism began and formed. They literally have built communities up away from the cities, up on the mountains. So Moses has this huge experience, huge, great spiritual experience, and we probably have all had that occasionally. And, but, he, but he's just like us, just actually like us, because he doesn't want it. He says, look, go get, my, go get my brother Aaron. He'll do it. I'm not ready for this. I can't even speak right. You, you got the wrong guy. I'm not the person. How many times has that happened to us as well? We get an event or a situation that comes to us that's perfect for us, but we can't accept it. We can't allow it to come in because we're too afraid of it. It's too much for us. We're not good enough. It's the story of human life is what you're seeing. And then eventually Moses goes into Egypt. And I think that's a multi-layered story for the creation of the Hebrew people. But I really think, if, if, as we know in history now, you know that when uh, people want to become Protestants versus Catholics, there was a great upheaval. We've seen it in Ireland where the Protestants and Catholics fought each other for hundreds of years. We see it in Sunni and, Shini, Sunni and Shiite who have fought each other for thousands of years over a tiny difference in what Muhammad said. So imagine what it would have been like to, to say, you know, I, this is great, but we're going we're gonna to go up here and start our own thing. There was a lot of uh, upset about that. You, if you look carefully, you actually find that in the Bible because often it says things where the, the Hebrew people were peacefully coexisting in this city. But they weren't over here and they had to fight their way through. And so I think the situation uh, with Moses going to, to Egypt was all of that craziness going on. And, and yet yeah, we're going to leave. No, we're not going to leave. We can't leave. I'm going to be upset with you if you leave. The same story. And the Exodus clearly is an indication of, of the Canaanite people leaving their polytheistic religion and moving out to find their way in life. Now there's a, when, when Moses went to Egypt, the Bible says, he says he took his wife and multiple children. And in the Bible, when you have multiple people, that means they are, all, they are multiple aspects of the situation. And so I viewed his wife and his younger children as being multiple aspects of the polytheistic religion they left. And the reason I say that is because there's a really strange story at the end um, where once, once Moses is leaving, he um, comes upon, with his, with his group, he comes upon near the area of Midian again. And Moses says, calls Aaron to him and says, you know, grab up all the usual suspects and go and destroy Midian. Well, Midian's his hometown. By this time, his wife and younger children, according to the Bible, have already returned because it was the first step to letting go of those aspects of the Canaanite religion. 
So the only way you can really understand how, why this would happen is that it's just another of a continuing cycle of speaking to the Jewish people saying, we're no longer Canaanites, we're Hebrew people. We're leaving this religion and we are now Jewish. This is our religion and this is our God. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, one second. So why do I think even more that that's true? What we know from all of the, all of the archaeology is that the Canaanites um, were polytheistic. They're the top of their god, their head chief god was named El. And then El, El somehow had a son. I think his wife was actually Asereth, Atheris. But he, he had a son. His son's name was Baal, B-A-A-L. You only find the word Baal in the Old Testament 125 times. So what they were doing is, is trying to push themselves away from this storm god, this god that was causing all the trouble. But never ever in the Old Testament do you find one single negative word towards El. Not at all. So in Genesis it says, chapter 14, verse 17, it says this. Um, <clears throat> give you just a little bit of background. Abram the man soon to be Abraham, the patriarch of all Jewish people, had just returned from a victorious battle. And they were celebrating him, and a great king came to help pray him in, basically. And it says, And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of El Elyon, meaning God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by, Abram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be Elyon, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The Hebrew God is the Canaanite God. It's exactly the same God. They weren't leaving the God they believed in. They were just leaving the bad guy God. They didn't like him at all, and they made that very clear in their writings. So it's fascinating to me, but also makes me totally believe that this is over. The, this is the case. Now, if we if we think further on, and we talk about the New Testament just a little bit. The New Testament was exactly the same, same situation. It did not mean that it was the literal word of God, but it was information that was being prepared in accordance with the scriptures below. Over and over and over again, you see that. Um, John Shelby Spong maybe said this much better than me. He said... To read the Gospels properly, I now believe requires a knowledge of Jewish culture, Jewish symbols, Jewish icons, and the tradition of Jewish storytelling. 
it requires an understanding of what the Jews called midrash, which we already talked about that. Only those people who were completely unaware of those things could ever have come to think that the Gospels were meant to be read literally. He had the courage to say what most people know to be the truth. He goes on to say, these same literal-minded Christians continue the necessity of defending the literalness of such events in the life of Jesus as the virgin birth, the miracles, the details of the passion narrative, and the cosmic ascension as an act that actually took place. You see, as we turn the Bible into a literalness, then we start reading everything that's in the New Testament, and much of that, those words are demeaning to human beings, especially Paul's letters. He gets lost in the fact that women should be seen but not heard. He says things about the gay community that was never correct. So that's the problem when you believe, read the Bible literally, we get lost in, in, the, in the 21st century meaning of those words, and we don't know what they really meant back in those times and should mean for us today. So for me, why it matters is because it's a matter of integrity to me. I, there are lots of ministers who stand in front of every their congregation and they read the Bible as though it was true. And I think that's irresponsible. And personally, I can't do it because I know it isn't that. It isn't that for me anyway. Jesus was a real person. He was a Jewish person. He was uh, a revolutionary. And his teachings are, were phenomenal. But mostly what he really was is a change in consciousness in the world at that time. And it's my belief, quite frankly, that where we are today, we need a new change in consciousness. We need to, to think in terms of not new thought, but evolutionary thought. It's time to step out from the veil of believing in the Bible in, in any old way and step out into the newest thought we can possibly put together. Because that's, that's what's going to be the future of Christianity or spirituality, is thinking about it with real words and having the courage to say what, frankly, all, almost every biblical scholar knows today. The Bible cannot be read in a literal way. So let me just finish this by reading one more thing from Bishop Spong, something that really touched me. Because once again, he said, we are called to live fully, love wastefully, and have the courage to be the best human beings that we can be. God bless. Thank you. Let's go into our meditation time just for a few moments. If you close your eyes and take a deep breath and begin to think about, let's take another deep breath as a matter of fact, and relax into this moment. Feel the love that's inside of you and think what it would be like to live fully right now, to breathe freely, to know fully who you are, 
and then begin to love wastefully like I believe was what we were being taught by the life of Jesus. Live wastefully. No more judgment. No more who's right, who's wrong, what color, what gender, what nationality. Learn to love wastefully and fully all the way to the depths of our being. What would that look like for you and me both if we could consciously commit to that path? Could we rise in consciousness enough to be able to do that? And I know we can. Let's take a few moments in the silence here and hold on to these thoughts about continue to look inside and ask yourself, how can I be more loving? How can I be a better parent, a better grandparent, a better partner, a better husband, a better wife? In truth, how can I be a better human being so that all humanity can benefit from each shining star that we make out there? Stay in this moment in the silence for just a second. as we begin slowly to come back to the room. Feel yourself sitting in the pews. Feel yourself becoming invigorated and waking up and rejoining the room that's filled with your love, your gifts, 